Well, hey, friends, welcome again to Vineyard Altoona. I'm so glad uh, you've joined us again. Before I jump in, I want to highlight two announcements, two things I want to highlight for you. Uh, first of all, on December 6th, I want you to mark on your calendar from 1 to 2 p.m. That's a Sunday. December 6th, we're going to do a uh, trivia uh, with the homes. So uh, all homes are going to participate, uh, and we're going to do a trivia day. So uh, mark that on your calendar, and you'll be hearing more information uh, in the upcoming future. The other thing that I want to highlight for you is next Sunday, November the 22nd, uh, at 6.30 p.m., we're going to begin a second gathering, uh, a, a different time. Uh, it'll be 6.30 p.m. It'll be all on Zoom. Uh, there won't be like home gatherings necessarily, but all on Zoom. Uh, what we're discovering is that there are some people who would like to connect, uh, but the 10.30 a.m. time is not going to work for them. So uh, we're going to begin this new gathering at 6.30 p.m. on Sundays. That's November 22nd. Uh, at 6.30 p.m. It'll be the same uh, video content uh, as the, the morning. Uh, the difference is that each home at the end will, uh, each person will be individual uh, in their own homes. And uh, so the breakout times like we used to do in the spring whenever we originally quarantined uh, will make their way back. And having prayer and, and conversation times at the end uh, in breakout rooms uh, will be a feature. So uh, what I really would appreciate is if you know somebody who would maybe be able to connect with us at that time, would you invite them? Maybe you could uh, help them get connected. The link will be, is the same link that's on the, the homepage, vineyardaltuna.org. It's the same link. Uh, and you can invite them. Uh, it's not really intended to take people away from the homes they're already connected to, uh, more as providing a new connection space for people who are disconnected. So uh, that begins next week. So with that, I want to just begin, you know, we're quickly approaching Christmas season, right? Uh, it's coming fast. I feel like uh, at some level we've been in 2020 for 30 years, and at some level 2020 has gone really fast. But Christmas season is right around the corner, and it's a season that gets referred to by the name the season of giving, right? You've, you've heard that term, the season of giving. But if your house is like mine, there's all these various Christmas lists floating around, you know, text message threads with my family. Uh, what do you want for Christmas? And it's so much could begin to feel like a season of endless desire. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's a giving season, but it seems like it revolves around what do you want? What can I get? And so as we think about this season, I want you to take just a thought about your own life for just a second. And I want you just to consider what compels you to give. In a season of giving, What? why do you give? Do you give out of expectation? You know, we're related. They have a list. I have a list. We're going to trade gifts. We have to. We're expected. Or do you give out of friendship? You know, I have friends. I have these coworkers that I really love working with. And so I give to them because, you know, we're friends. Or do you give because you expect people to give back to you? Or do you give when you see a need? What compels you to give? I want you to think about it. Why do you do it? What compels you to give? And then the second question I want you to consider is, is your giving just limited to the giving season? Or is the reason that you give something that compels you year round. We started this brief series that we're calling Get God. 
We started it last week, and this uh, is the motivation that that Jesus puts in front of those who follow him for giving. That we are to be people who give to get God. We're to be people who do our acts of righteousness, not for anything other than to get God. And that's what we talked about last week. Today, we're going to pick up right where we left off in chapter 6. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 2. Last week, we we only looked at verse 1. And what I said last week is Jesus tells us that when we do our acts of righteousness, we're to do so only to get God. That if we have any other motivation or any other expectation, we shouldn't expect any reward from God. But that God does reward those who do their acts of righteousness to get him. That he is the great reward. The things we do, we are to do with the intent to get God. And this week we're going to look at giving. That Jesus talks about how we do giving. Do we give to get God? And that's the message today. The title of the message is Give to Get God. Would you pray with me as we open the scriptures? And so, Lord, we do welcome you into this time and into this space. And and God, with all the things that are going on in the world, we turn our affections and our attentions to you. God, we want to hear your word as we open the scriptures, as we open your word. Would you speak to us? Would you reveal your heart to us? God, would you teach us to give such that we would get God? Lord, would you enable me to speak as I should? Put your words in my mouth in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 2, and here's what we read. Jesus says, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. No, as we read this passage, one thing that jumps right off the page at the outset, and I don't know if you caught it, is that Jesus expects his people to give to the needy. It's an expectation. Look again at verse 2. It says, so when you give to the needy. In verse 3, but when you give to the needy. Jesus doesn't say, if you give to the needy. Jesus doesn't say, you know, generosity is something if you get around to it would be great, but, you know, I understand it's a busy life. Jesus says giving to the needy is essential. It's not optional. Concern and care for the poor, it's not a side issue that we add once we get all the really spiritual things locked down. It's central to the gospel. In fact, here's how Jesus puts it in Luke 4. Jesus comes in and into the to the uh, synagogue and what he he's he's teaching and he says this. This is basically uh, scholars would say is his mission statement. Luke four it says the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The good news for the poor that Jesus is referring to. It's not some far off, we get to the end, by and by when you die. The good news for the poor is good news now. It's good news today. 
This is the gospel, that the gospel is supposed to be good news for the poor now. Not some future hope that's off in the middle of nowhere. The gospel is good news for the poor now. Being kingdom people means loving and caring for the poor, lifting up the poor. That we who surrender to Jesus make up a kingdom where the king's priority is to elevate the poor, to lift them up. But this isn't a new teaching. It's not like Jesus came and said, all right, we're going to do something altogether different. God has always cared about the poor. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 15 says this, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you, this is God speaking, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. In fact, what gets the nation of Israel in so much trouble in the Old Testament, if you read all of the prophets before the exile, the thing that God is so upset about is that the Israelites didn't care for the poor, that they cheated the poor that they mistreated the poor, they abused the poor. The judgment on the nation of Israel, in large part, was their mistreatment of the poor. God has always cared about his people and how they treat the poor and the needy. And when Jesus shows up proclaiming the kingdom of God has come near, one pillar of the kingdom is that the poor get elevated that they get lifted up, that those in the kingdom are generous toward those in need. And when you take a look at the early church, you know, the early church got this. They understood this clearly. Look at uh, Acts 2.44. It says this. You guys have probably heard this one before. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. The picture of the early church reflects their understanding that the gospel is good news for the poor. It's inextricably tied toward generosity toward the poor and the needy. You can keep reading early church history. It's foundational. Over and over and over and over again in church history, one of the foundational things that made the church different was that they cared for the poor. It's front and center. Now, because it's so clear, you would expect that it's something that we in the church today are known for, right? Wouldn't you expect that? Wouldn't you expect, man, you know, the testimony of the, the, the scriptures, the testimony of the early church is that we care for the poor. You would expect that that's what we do in the church today, but it's not. I mean, we are somewhat generous and there are people who are kind of generous, but to the degree the early church was generous, we kind of pale in comparison. So here's a question. Why don't we give to the needy? I mean, I, I do think that the church needs to own some of this, right? Like, I think there's a, a responsibility that the church has uh, to own some of why people don't give to the needy, why Christians don't give to the needy. Some of it. For example, you know, there was this recent uh, statistic I read that said uh, that the average church goer, the average Christian gives two and a half percent of their income to the church. In comparison, if you look back to the 1930s, the Great Depression, that number was 3.3%. So in the middle of the Great Depression, the church gave more 
than they do now. And, and the same study said that less than a quarter of any given congregation gives a full 10%. Less than a quarter. Some, some would say even down to 10% of any given congregation is that generous. Here's, the, here's why I think the church has something to bear. You know, in the early church, money given to the uh, church was strategically given away to those who were most in need. That the church would take in money that was given and distribute it to those who had need. But many people's trust here in the church in America has been shattered. We've seen money wasted on elaborate buildings and ornate fixtures, and we've seen money blown to pay exorbitant salaries and, and for programs that have almost nothing or maybe nothing to do with the spread of the gospel. And consequently, I think people tend to shy away from trusting the church. And here's where I think the church owes everyone a sort of apology for because we've violated the trust of people. So when Christians are faced with a decision about where their money is going to serve the poor the most, I think a lot of times in America, we don't think the church is where it would be. So we do need to own some of these missteps and, and work to earn the trust of Christians who do want to give. That's, that's a thing I think we need to do. But the bulk of the problem is not organizational. The bulk of the problem comes all the way back to our own hearts. So why don't we give to the needy? Why don't we? Look again at verse 2 with me. Verse 2 says, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Jesus points at the hypocrites as his example for the wrong way to give. He says, these people give to the needy in order to get the thing that they actually worship, which is not God. He says, they, they give to, to the needy to get a, a, a accolade or notoriety or privilege. So when they give, they actually are giving to worship the thing they actually care about. But it's not God. Jesus is making a very exacting statement here. He's pushing on why we all struggle to give to the needy. We don't give to the needy because at root, we're all idolaters. We all worship other things before we worship God. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, said that the human heart is a factory of idols. That we all create things that we worship ahead of God. And here's the thing, you can really tell what you worship by what you do with money. You can I can tell you, if you hand me your checkbook, I can tell you what you worship. If anybody keeps a checkbook anymore. If you know me well, let me just tell you this, a little bit of a story to illustrate. If you know me well, one of the things that you'll discover is that I really like to read. But most of you don't know why I like to read so much. Uh, one of the internal fears that I wrestle with is this fear that people will think I'm stupid. And I, we could talk about that, about where that came from. Uh, but so I protect myself by studying and educating myself and reading and learning a lot of things. I do so because at my worst, I believe that my value as a human being is tied to what people think about me, that people would think I'm smart. At my worst, if I'm 
If I'm far from God, that's what I believe. So consequently, when I find myself drifting from God, what I tend to do is I tend to buy more books. I have no problem dropping money on books because at root, I'm doing this because I believe education and knowledge is going to save me from what I fear most. And so I find it real easy to give money to the thing that I end up worshiping if I find myself far from God. But it's a struggle for me to give to the needy. Listen, I'm not alone in this. We all have things like that. You know, if you believe that your value is tied to your looks, you will find it really easy to give money to clothes and products to to do your hair and, and things for your face. You will find it real easy to give money to things that will bolster your looks. If you find that your value is tied in status, you'll find it real easy to buy a nice new car, expensive car, a nice big house, or anything else that would bolster your status. If you find uh, that your value is tied to reputation, you'll give it to causes that make you look more reputable. That's exactly the idolatry that Jesus is confronting here. He says, if you give money to the poor, but you expect to make a big splash and for people to say, wow, look at that. You're not doing so to worship God. You're doing so and you're giving to the God of your own reputation, that you're actually serving an idol. Where we spend our money is a deep indicator of what we worship. And listen, if you want to take that test, take a look at where your money goes. It's really hard, I think, to be a faithful follower of Jesus without a really good budget. Because if you have no idea where your money goes, what you'll find whenever you finally look at it is you'll find a list of your idols. It takes the discipline of budgeting to actually serve God well, because then you tell your money where you want it to go. Look again, though, at verse 3. Verse 3 says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. You know, giving to the poor and the needy in the way that Jesus describes doesn't result in any accolade. Over and over, Jesus says, you should be generous to people who can't pay you back. When you throw a banquet, invite people who can't invite you back over. He says we should give when there's no earthly reward. Jesus says that we should give in order to get God. Give to get God. That's the great reward, that you as a reward for your giving, you get God. Is that true for you? Do you give to get God? The statistics in the church in 2020 would indicate that we don't do this very well. That we don't give to get God very well. So if it's clear from the testimony of Scripture and the witness of the early church that we who follow Jesus are to be generous toward the poor, and yet we generally fail to live up to this, The question becomes, how do we become these kinds of people? How do we become the kind of people who give generously to get God? How do we become those people? Listen, it won't change by just changing the mechanics of how we give. 
Like this is the shortcut answer, right? That we would just stop giving in a way people would see and we find some super secret way. You know, maybe I do the text to give and nobody will know and I don't have to say. It's not about mechanics. It's about changing the heart behind why we give. You want to change? You have to change the heart behind why you give. What we all need is our hearts to be turned to God. We need to have a way for our hearts to be to be uh, to desire God above all things. We need a way for our hearts to be satisfied with God as our great reward. We need the gospel. The way we become these kinds of people is the gospel. Tim Keller, a uh, pastor in New York, puts it this way. When Jesus was in heaven, he had all resource. He had all power. He had all glory. The only thing he lacked was you and me. The only thing he lacked was us. We were lost. And so Jesus laid down all resource. He laid down all power and he laid down all glory so that he could have you and me. He became nothing and died on our behalf so that he could have us, that we were of a value worth dying for. He made himself nothing and he died on our behalf so that he could have us. You and I are a prize. How do I overcome the idol of knowledge that I struggle with? Let me tell you this. Here's, here's how I, when I, I find it so easy to worship an idol of knowledge. How do I overcome the idol of knowledge that I tend to worship with money? When I understand that I have such value in the eyes of God that he would lay down all resource, all power, and all glory to have me, that he would give it all away for me, my hard heart is softened. And I discover that my value is not tied up in what I know, but in rather in who I belong to. And I'm freed up like my Savior Jesus to be generous on behalf of others. Friend, how do you get free? How do you overcome the idol of appearance? How do you overcome the idol of security and looks and uh, all those things and status? How do you overcome this when you find it so easy to worship with money? You begin to hear and understand the gospel, the good news that you have such value to Jesus that he would lay down all resource, all privilege, and all glory, that he would die on your behalf, that he would come to get you, and your hard heart is softened. You discover that your value isn't tied up in what anyone thinks, but rather what God thinks of you, and you're freed up like your Savior Jesus, to be generous on behalf of others. I need the gospel. You need the gospel. We all need the gospel. It's the only way forward.